Let us pray. Our most gracious Father, draw near to us now and bring your word upon us. Renew our hearts and our minds. Renew us inwardly and outwardly that we might more fully hear your Spirit's work in us, more fully hear your Spirit in this word, that he would be with us always, and that we would ever be renewed, that we would ever know the forgiveness that is applied to us continually through Christ, that we would ever know your faithfulness to your promises, that we would know your steadfast love toward us. We ask this all through that very same Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What a story we have today, isn't it? We hear about the rich man and Lazarus. It's one that we're familiar with, but one that for many in Jesus' day, they would have been shocked to hear such a story. You may ask, well, why would they be shocked to hear this parable, to hear this story about a rich man and about a poor man? Mainly because so often the rich man, the rich were viewed as those who were supremely blessed by God, that they wouldn't have had the wealth that they had if it wasn't for God giving it to them and blessing them, and that the poor ultimately were there because they were cursed in some way that they were brought down into the dust because God had made them go there because of sin in their life or something like that. That is what his hearers would have expected, for that's what they saw all around them so often. They see the Pharisees who seem to be the purveyors of the law, the good, obedient ones, and they are well off. They do well for themselves. And they present themselves as those who are holy, those who are pious before the people. And so it's wedded into their minds that the rich get blessed and the poor get cursed. But the story might also kind of shock our ears from our modern sensibilities. Well, why would that be? Because... The man who does wrong, the man who ends up going down, doesn't get a chance at redemption anymore. We all love our stories of redemption arcs, right? Where you have the, good, the guy who turns into the good guy at the end, but he's a jerk at the beginning. Think of the movie Iron Man, for instance. Tony Stark is a billionaire jerk. He does everything and is focused solely on himself. But eventually, through circumstances, through seeing what his company has done around the world with its arms dealing and its race wars and trying to create more and more weapons of mass destruction, he sees that his company has been doing evil. And so he begins to stand against that and eventually risk his own life in order to push back and change his company and to change the world in the course of events because he becomes Iron Man ultimately. So he got a redemption arc. He didn't go down into the grave as a billionaire who only cared about himself. He got an opportunity of redemption because he heard and saw the events around him and let them speak to him. His conscience came alive when he saw the damage that he was causing by his selfishness and by his actions. 
but not this rich man. He has everything he needs in order to know that God is a God of mercy, to know that God is a God who calls him from sin and into new life, that he is to be called from his selfishness, from his sinful ways, and called to know the Lord who is faithful to his promises, faithful to the children of Abraham. But he ignores that call throughout his life. He ignores everything that God has placed before him, even ignoring the man sitting at his gate that he walks by continually. He ignores the word of God and refuses faith, refuses to trust in this one God. All along, never realizing that we are always called to hear the word of God. And in hearing that word to respond in faith, trusting in Christ alone and not in the things that we have in this life. Like St. Paul said in his letter to Timothy, tell the rich not to trust in the uncertainty of their riches. We are called to hear the word and to trust in Christ and to not trust in that which we have around us. And the first thing that we see very much so in this story that strikes me as so interesting is that we have the unnamed and the named. The unnamed and the named. Jesus just simply starts this parable off with, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Here Jesus goes a different direction than with all of his other parables. Never in his parables does he name a character in the parable. Because of this name showing up here, some think that maybe this isn't just a parable. But I think just in the way that it occurs here in the Gospel of Luke, you have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost corn, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the dishonest manager, and then suddenly this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The story of the rich man and Lazarus, that it follows that same parabolic forms, except for naming a character. And I think that it's important to this story that Lazarus is named. We only know the actions of the rich man. He is just a rich guy. We don't know his name. He is left unknown to us, unnamed before us. But here's how rich he is, Jesus says. He is clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple, the symbol of kings, the symbol of wealth. And there's a reason why purple was so important to kings in the ancient world. There in the Near East, the only way that they could get the purple dye necessary for coloring, for dyeing robes and clothing, was to go out on fishing boats and to find a marine snail. It all came from a single marine snail, a single type of snail there in the ocean that they would have to capture, that they would have to troll after. It would take thousands of them to dye even a single robe. And so purple was a very high-end commodity. It was hard to find. It was hard to get because these snails lived in the ocean. And so they'd have to go after them. They'd have to pursue them and capture them with everything else that they were capturing. And out of them came that purple dye. Like I said, it was a great deal of effort and thus is extraordinarily expensive to have anything that was purple. Hence, only kings and the greatest of rulers had purple clothing. Some of the priests in the temple had some, the high priest had purple dyed, had purple dyed robes. Parts of his robes were dyed purple. 
But that was given by God to the high priest to show that he was to stand before God and represent the people as their representative, just as kings represent the people. But this man, this rich man, had clothing of purple that he wore all the time, fine linen that he always had on. But on top of that, not just was he rich with this purple clothing, with this kingly clothing, but he feasted sumptuously every day. He had more than enough food. He was constantly having feasts, inviting people over, and celebrating all the best that he had. In many ways, he was the best of the best. He had wealth beyond imagining. And yet, this man remains unnamed. As great as he must have been in this story, as great as he was in this world that Jesus was demonstrating to the people, he was unnamed in the story. He was unknown to us and the hearers. An anonymous rich man who lived only for himself. But then there is the named man, Lazarus. And at this rich man's gate was laid a poor man. And you think that might just go on from there. A poor man covered with sores. But no, Jesus says named Lazarus. Named Lazarus. Well, so unique about this name Lazarus and what I love about it, not only is it maybe in some way for us super familiar with the Gospels, kind of a foreshadowing of another man named Lazarus, but that it's a form of the name of the Hebrew name Eleazar. And that that name is one whom God helps. One who trusts God for help. And here is this poor man named one whom God will help. And he's covered with sores. He only simply wants to be fed the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Here, this man, Lazarus, is not just down on his luck. He's not just a beggar, but he is the lowest of the low, truly living in the dust and the ashes, living in the dirt, covered in sores, starving, never having enough. And he was laid at the gate. People brought him and laid him at the rich man's gate, probably thinking this man is so wealthy, surely he will help him. Surely he will provide for him something, even just a tiniest morsel, to help him live a little better. But he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, hinting at us and telling us that he didn't receive anything from this rich man. This rich man didn't care about this poor man laying at his gate, this poor man that he walked by every day, this poor man that his guest would walk by. And apparently never commented about that. They just ignored him. Not only is he the lowest of the low, he is the beggar that is the precise opposite of the rich man in utter destitution. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. This is one of those moments where our modern understanding of dogs is nothing of the biblical understanding. Dogs are scavengers. Dogs are animals of wickedness. They don't represent good things. They aren't man's best friend in the Bible. They're animals who prowl around and eat the trash and everything else that's just left out the refuse. They eat the scraps of food that no one else wants. You could almost say that 
Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And on top of even that, never getting anything, the dogs came and they were licking him. They're not licking him to comfort him. They're licking him to bring more pain to him, to demonstrate the pain and the loneliness that this man is in. This man who is utterly destitute, his only company is the animals that live on the fringes of society, that live on the fringes of the animal kingdom. That is how poor this man is. The animals that came and ate Jezebel, the wicked queen Jezebel, when she was cast from the palace windows, the dogs consumed her corpse, leaving nothing but her skull and her hands. Hardly anything was left of her. And there is Lazarus being licked by these dogs. But nonetheless, we know Lazarus by name. He is known by name. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus is showing pity toward him by naming him. By naming him, God will help the one whom God helps. That is who Lazarus is, the one whom God will help. He is known and he is cared about. While the rich man remains unknown and blank before us, he gets everything he wants, choosing pleasure above all things, leaving Lazarus suffering. But God knows Lazarus. Jesus knows Lazarus and cares for him. And that's what we see in the next part of this parable. The great reversal that comes about. This man, Lazarus, being utterly destitute and this rich man having the wealth beyond dreams. There's a great reversal that happens for the poor man died. And what happened to this poor man? This Lazarus, he is carried by the angels to Abraham. He is carried up to Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom. And there he rests in Abraham's presence. The angels came and cared for this man. Truly the Lord has shown his help toward him. For he is one who is trusted in the Lord. It's not because he is merely poor. It's not because he is destitute that he is saved. But there is something about him trusting in God alone for that is how one comes to come into heaven into paradise to be with abraham to be with the father of the faithful he is carried by the angels god helps him into heaven itself but also the rich man died and was buried and that's all we hear about him he is buried his earthly life simply ends and we know nothing else and he is in hades he is in torment. He feels the fires burning around him. He doesn't know or understand fully why he is there. There is a great reversal of situation, but not of attitudes. For Lazarus laid at the gate quietly, and now he sits at Abraham's side quietly, receiving the blessing of Abraham. And here the rich man who had everything that he could ever want is now cast down into Hades for his wicked living, for his lack of faith. But one thing is not reversed. That is the attitudes of these people. The rich man remains with a privileged attitude. He remains self-centered. He remains all about himself. For what does he do? As he looks up and sees Abraham far off, he calls out, seeing Lazarus there, and he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Does he confess his wrongfulness? Does he confess his sins? Does he show any sign of repentance? No. 
He says, have mercy on me. The one who would not show mercy begs for mercy. You who show no mercy now ask for it. He wants Lazarus to be his servant still. He viewed Lazarus as nothing, and now he just views him merely as a servant to come and give to him what he needs. He needs water, so send this man to come and serve me and care for me and lift me up and make my life better. His attitude is all about himself. Though he shows some respect, he calls out Father Abraham. He knows that he himself is a Jew, this rich man is a Jew, and therefore Abraham is his father, and he doesn't fully understand why being a child of Abraham, he has ended up in Hades, but it's because he has been unfaithful. He has been unmerciful. He has been unjust in his behavior and his actions during his life. And so he is separated from Abraham, from the presence of God, from the goodness and the blessings of our Father in heaven. And he wants mercy now, just a simple mercy of a drip of water on his tongue. It seems so little. But he chose his place. He has chosen his self-centeredness in life, and now he is locked into that self-centeredness for eternity. And Abraham says to him, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted, and you are in anguish. The great reversal is there. You had good, and now you're in anguish. Lazarus had bad, but now he has comfort. He has that which he desired in life. The simplicity of just some comfort, some food, some restoration. And he receives it in abundance, looking to God in faith, being the one whom God has helped. And Abraham continues, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not, and none may cross from there to us. So the chasm is fixed. Once one goes into Hades and once one goes into the bosom of Abraham, there is no changing the situation. One cannot come and minister to those who are in Hades and those who are in Hades cannot get a second chance to cross back over into the blessed life. His situation is fixed upon death just as Lazarus's situation is fixed upon death. And Lazarus remains in that blessed comfort. Pictures I've seen, drawings of him just looking to Abraham, looking at him. And there's all kinds of questions about what this afterlife is that Jesus is painting. Is this before the death and resurrection of Christ? Is this the grave? Is this what they mean by Sheol in the Old Testament, that there's a place where people went and waited until the final resurrection, until Jesus' resurrection and bringing people into heaven? I don't know. I can't answer that question in the midst of this sermon right now. It's a good discussion to have to understand the afterlife better. But nonetheless, we know that upon death, there is a place of blessing. Heaven being in God's presence and there is a place of punishment. Hades that will ultimately be cast after the final judgment into Gehenna, into hell itself, the lake of fire, where death and the grave are just cast off and fully taken away from any sense of God's presence of goodness, of his blessing. And people are fully sealed into their eternal damnation. But here this man then says, well, if you can't help me, then do this, I beg you. Send Lazarus, again, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have brothers so that he may warn them. So that they don't come to this place of torment. 
But Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. And this tells us that there is a truly sufficient word before us. There is a word that can save us. There is a word that will renew us. There is a word that can be heard. They, your brothers, have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This rich man begs for his brothers to be sent someone from beyond the dead. And he says, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them, they will repent. If someone goes from the dead, they will repent. I love the indirect claim that this rich man is saying. Indirectly, this rich man says the word is not sufficient. The word is not good enough. The law and the prophets, they can't tell me what I need. They didn't save me. The reason they didn't was because he refused to hear them. And he is saying, my brothers won't hear that. They won't hear Moses. They won't hear the prophets. They won't hear the word of God given to them. They won't listen to it. God's words aren't good enough is what he says. But Abraham, Father Abraham says, let them hear the word. Let them hear and respond. Let them know the word. Let them listen to the word. That is what they are called to do. They are not called to live in ignorance of the word. They are not called to ignore the word. They are called to be hearers. And in being hearers, they will become doers. They will respond when they hear the word and listen to it. The law and the prophets are sufficient to warn them, to bring them to faith, to bring them away from that place of torment before it's too late. Jesus said a little earlier that it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The law is eternal. The prophets are eternal because it is the word of God with the spirit of God working in and through and by that very word that he has inspired and given to us. But this rich man says, no, send someone from the dead. Send Lazarus, resurrect him, and they will repent. But Jesus says, if they do not hear the law and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If they refuse the law, if they refuse the word, there is no point in sending someone from the dead to them, for they will not repent. If they can't hear the word, they will not hear one who preaches the word who's been raised from the dead. And this is where we get that connection over to John, I think. Yes, there is definitely the connection of Jesus being raised from the dead. But in the grand scheme of God bringing us the word to us, bringing us all four gospels, we hear the story of another man named Lazarus who did die and who Jesus raised from the dead. And what happened when Jesus raised him from the dead? Did people celebrate? Did all the Pharisees say, wow, what magnificent power you have. You raised this man who was dead for four days, who was corrupt in the grave. His body was breaking down. He was unclean, and yet you brought him back to life. You pulled his body back together and healed the damage done by the natural decay that occurs after death. No, they plotted. They plotted even more to kill Jesus and to kill Lazarus again, to put him to death for simply being raised from the dead and saying, Jesus brought me back to life. So what did resurrection do in that case? For those Pharisees, it hardened their hearts even more, for they rejected the law and the prophets. They rejected the work of God through his word by his spirit. Their hearts weren't awakened from deadness. Their hearts were driven deeper into deadness. And that is why Jesus says, 
If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. For Jesus raised Lazarus, and there before Jesus, they plotted even more desperately to kill Jesus and Lazarus. And even more so, with Jesus' full and complete resurrection, his glorification being raised from the dead bodily, the world rejects it. The world refuses to hear it. The world refuses to accept the idea that a man could rise from the dead. They say it's scientifically impossible because it's never happened. It's not something that normally happens, therefore it can never happen. But that's history, isn't it? History is a series of events that only happen once, that we record and write down after the fact. History cannot be scientifically proven in the way that we demonstrate scientific facts and ideas. Events simply happen, and we take it for granted that they did happen when someone writes it down. And we can look for evidence, and we can find it in all kinds of ways, but they are just simple, singular events that have happened, and therefore, history is a series of singular, one-time events that are tied together by time. And Jesus' resurrection is one of those events, the greatest event, a one-time event in this world of one man being dead and being raised back into a glorious new kind of life, not just waking up in the grave, but receiving new and eternal kind of life that he then pours out upon the rest of the world to be received, to be clung to. But it is only those who hear the word and respond with faith that will receive it. Those who are changed by that very word of proclamation that Christ has died for your sins, Christ takes your wickedness upon himself and does away with it so that you can be renewed, you can be drawn up, you can be made into the likeness and image of Christ himself. Jesus' resurrection saves us from death, hell, and the grave when we turn to him in faith. It is the miracle of miracles. But if not for the word undergirding that miracle, the word of God undergirding what Jesus has done, miracles will not keep our faith alive. The word of God is what keeps our faith alive. Miracles will not keep us moving forward. That's why we're not called to hear about miracles. We're called to hear the word of God itself. Miracles are great and glorious. But look at what the miracles in Exodus and Numbers did for the Israelites. Nothing because they wouldn't hear Moses. They wouldn't hear the word of the covenant given to them at Mount Sinai from God himself. And so those miracles that were demonstrations of the care and the work of God promised in his covenant fell on deaf ears, except for Joshua and Caleb at the end. Only they entered into the promised land of that original generation. Those great miracles couldn't sustain their faith because they refused the word. And when we refuse the word, our faith will wither up. We must hear the word and be changed by the word and respond to the word. And the rest of the word we have heard today are hard words for us to follow after. But review them, read over them, remember what it says about the rich in Timothy. Don't trust in your riches, trust in God. Don't trust in your wealth, don't trust in the good things you have, trust in God and his word. Be a man of God. Be faithful to Jesus who has died for your sins. Be faithful and hear him always. For we are called to hear the word of God. For in that hearing of the word of God, we are changed and transformed. We are given the faith with which we then walk in. So hear the word of God this day. Hear it and be changed now. For it is the Holy Spirit at work in you through this word and by this word that you would have faith and walk 
faithfully. That you would walk in the good deeds that the Lord has given to us to do. And so hear that word and respond with those good deeds of faith that he gives to you and inspires you and empowers you to do. For it is by his grace and his mercy that we can follow him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.